I have notes, but you'll be glad. <laughs> I have long been interested in between space, in the zone of action between people, through which a third entity, I'm so tall, is created. Something like a third presence in the room. Together, A and B make C. Think of the times when you've been at some social event and introduced to a stranger. You begin to talk, and then suddenly, after a few minutes, you realize that there's a warmth and ease passing between the two of you. It has nothing to do with anything you've said. It's simply there. Conversely, you meet another stranger at a dinner party. You begin to talk. And after a few minutes, something has gone terribly wrong. <laughs> a bristling hostility appears between you. It can't be anything you said, because everything you've said has been innocent, innocuous, as all such conversations are. What does it mean? How do we begin to frame this fragile and interesting space of the between? The initial meeting between people is one thing. Friendships and love affairs may begin on a high note and later go sour. Obstacles begin to appear. We are, of course, in the world of what popular culture calls the relationship. People do all kinds of things for their relationships. Um, they work and buy books that have seven easy steps to fix their relationships. They cry on television about their relationships. Relationships are big business. I call just one quote from the internet. Feeling distant from your partner? Imago couples therapy and workshops show you how to restore connection. But what is that? connection. The term, the between, comes from the philosopher Martin Buber, who used it to describe what he thought was an ontological reality. That is, a form of being that could not be reduced to either person, but was more than both. Buber wrote that the ideal form of this uh, communication was this. He says, a change from communication to communion. That is the embodiment of the world word dialogue. For Buber, ideal communion is not made of trading and linguistic signs between two people. It is something more than that. It is physical. Anyone who thinks about it realizes that our relations with others are not purely cognitive or intellectual, even if that's what we're talking about. They are embodied. When I see the man nodding knowingly across from me at the table, and I feel his condescension before I can say it, I feel it in the sides of my mouth, in tension in my jaw. It is an embodied relationship. Even the driest encounters between human beings, in fact, are embodied, physical. Antonio Damasio, the neuroscientist some of you may have read, has a very nice word for these emotional colorings 
of human encounters. He calls them background feelings. Even if we are not angry or sad or joyous, we have background feelings. Sigmund Freud called the between a transference. He had many different words for it, and like many of Freud's ideas, the idea of transference mutated over time. He referred to this intermediate region as a playground, a territory of struggle, even a battleground. But he always made it clear that transference happens in the real world, not just in psychoanalysis, and that it is a biological phenomenon and not purely a mental or psychological one. And it turns on our emotional relations with crucial people, of course our parents, but also siblings and others who have been significant in our lives. A man, I'll call him A, begins a conversation with B at a cocktail party, a woman. B is attractive, A has hopes. And then he notices that she is glancing at someone or something behind him. A suddenly feel, feels dismissed, lost by B's wandering eyes. He has felt this before. In fact, he repeatedly feels let down by women with meandering eyes. He makes an excuse and walks off. B is left standing there, surprised. She liked A. What has happened? An admittedly simplistic Freudian answer might go something like this. A was the sixth of eight children. He was always competing for his mother's eyes. Indeed, they were always elsewhere, and although he is not conscious of it, he has always longed so much for a woman to be wholly attentive to him and to his needs that he has sabotaged all his love affairs. Freud would say that he has transferred this piece of his emotional life onto B. Now, is such an answer plausible or is it nonsense? In ordinary parlance, we would call the anxiety produced in A that can be traced back to his mother psychological, not a biological explanation. That is because we are all, in fact, Cartesians, whether we know it or not. Rene Descartes, the 17th century French philosopher, said that human beings were made of two things, spirit and matter. Matter is the brute body, and spirit is the ego, our thoughts. Cogito ergo sum. But unless you believe in a supernatural power, this is a big, big problem. And by the way, it's one that is not solved philosophically or scientifically. The, the question that Margaret Cavendish, yes, Margaret Cavendish, a woman philosopher asked in 1664 is still with us. This is Cavendish. I would fain ask them where their immaterial ideas reside, in what part or place in the body. How do they make thoughts, huh? How does the brain make thoughts? Is a mind different from a brain? Neither philosophers nor scientists has answered the question of consciousness. What is that thing that makes us awake and aware and thinking about people around us? 
Freud, by the way, was not a Cartesian. He was a hard-bitten monist, a materialist. There is a way to think about our mythical cocktail parties and the relationship between A and B as a psychobiological phenomenon that is by its nature intersubjective. Intersubjectivity is another word for that space, that between space, the actions and relations that take place between people and are crucial to the story of human development. Human beings are born immature and dependent. If you leave a baby alone, it will die. Nevertheless, infants aren't blank slates or borderless blobs. This is important. The decoding of the genome, which some scientists hoped would serve as a fixed map for uh, human traits, has proved disappointing, and it's been replaced by something called epigenetics. This is very interesting. Epigenetics is the study of how genes are expressed through the environment. In other words, the classical divide of nature and nurture does not apply. They are not separable. One becomes the other. In the last 30 years, infant research has overturned earlier thinkers, such as Freud and Piaget, who regarded the newborn as egocentric and asocial. We are intersubjective from the moment we are born. Every human infant can imitate the facial expressions of an adult. Most parents don't need anyone to tell them that, but now it's part of science. 45-minute-old infants can stick out their tongues when they see a researcher do the same. And the relations between an infant and the mother become part of what is now called attunement, an embodied dialogue that has an crucial effect on the autonomic, neurochemical, and hormonal functions of an infant's brain. The brain is a plastic, dynamic organ that changes through experience. Donald Hebb, a famous neuropsychologist, said in 1949, neurons that fire together, wire together. It's a good thing to remember. And lasting patterns, lasting patterns of response between mother and infant become physiologically embedded and human beings become part of who they are. The discovery of mirror neurons in the premotor cortex of macaque monkeys in 1995, these are neurons that fire in two monkeys, a monkey looking at an act and a monkey doing the act. At the same time, same neurons. And these, this discovery has developed and it has changed thinking about the nature of intersubjectivity and its neurobiological roots. It has also gotten people interested in phenomenology, the phenomenology like of someone like Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who wrote a beautiful thing. He said, the body is our general medium for having a world. Every single one of us is a product of a psychobiological narrative that begins even before birth. And we are equipped with developed and developing bodily systems that read and map the actions of others. So if I'm watching a dancer, there are systems in my brain, motor sensory systems that are activated in a form of embodied simulation to quote uh, Vittorio Galese, a neuroscientist, and um, those things are, I got it, two minutes. So that intersubjective space is definitely 
something that develops over time and is dynamic. The intersubjective space between A and B then, our two people, is at once complex and delicate. A space in which two emotional histories have been inscribed in two physiologies, and they create a third reality between them. Of course, if we want to, we can rewrite our little story about A and B. A is turning away, but he has not left yet. And B, feeling flustered and rejected, is nevertheless a person who has learned to combat her shyness. Who knows, maybe she went to imago couples therapy. Or, better yet, she did a more conventional form of psychotherapy. It is, in fact, true that executive and cognitive parts of the brain can regulate and change emotional reactions in the more primitive, older parts of the brain. That's why the talking cure can indeed work. So A is turning away. B looks at him. She bucks up her courage, and she says, you were saying that you like Preston Sturgis, especially Sullivan's travels. Well, so do I. And he turns back to her. Their eyes meet, and they have reinvented the space between them. But we don't want to be too saccharine about what happens between A and B. I have no idea what happens next. Thank you.